Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode two of Remarvel here at the Chris and Reggie channel. Uh, not really sure what the schedule for this program will be. Uh, I can say, uh, as of right now, it's weekly, so <laughs> there we are. But uh, we'll see how things go moving forward here. Uh, just got really excited about talking about the uh, book we're going to discuss today um, because it does uh, facilitate some, I think, a relatable conversation for comic fans and comic collectors in that uh, the book we're going to discuss was actually my very first, you know, what we call white whales. You know, the things you're hunting for, you can't find them. They're not necessarily, you know, the big key books, you know, the first appearances or uh, the first time an artist is on a book. Sometimes it's just a... A book that you just can't find It's just a book that's missing from your run And no matter where you look uh, Be it your regular haunts or your long distance haunts Or uh, rooting through friends collections You just can't find this one issue um, And we, we've talked about white whales before uh, We did that lady cop episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths Where that was a white whale of mine for a very long time But it was also in a very different time uh, This is you know, past 15, 20 years where you could find things online if, if you so desired. You could find things easily and at a very good price and with uh, expediency. You know, you'd get it the next day or two days later and you'd be just as good. You'd have your the hole in your collection filled, um, if not for the rules that I impose upon myself, where I refuse to, you know, buy things online. It has to be in the wild. And uh, that kind of feeling might actually be born out of this very hunt because it kind of informed the way that I look for comics and the way that, uh, and the satisfaction uh, uh, of the hunt and of uh, collecting. I hate to compare it to like a sport, but it does feel like, uh, you know, you are kind of sporting. You're, uh, you're looking for something, you're seeking something out and... You know, even the the near misses are ha have a measure of satisfaction to them. Like, if you're on the trail and you get the scent and you think you might be finding it, but you don't... I mean, sure, that's a bummer that you didn't find it, but at the same time, it's, uh... You know, you're, you're kind of reinvigorated. You know that there's another hunt coming. And, uh... And when you, when you reach a certain age or when you have comics just anywhere you want them, it's so easy to get. I feel like a part of that uh, kind of died. You know, kind of the... The desire to hunt and the the energy of the hunter is just uh just not as uh not as strong as it was because things are a lot easier to come by and a lot of that has to do with the the day and age we're in and also the age of me because uh, you know we're going back to a story here where I was eleven twelve years old so didn't really have all the freedom in the world couldn't drive up and down the coast looking for various comic shops to see just in case they had, you know, the issue I'm looking for here. So, you know, there there is a certain magic to being a, a child who's collecting things. And uh, the, the book we're going to discuss today, it's not a key book. It's not a wizard hot book or anything. It's just a, a regular issue from the second volume of X-Men. And, uh, you know, eventually I do want to maybe tell a story about my time with the X-Men, you know, a little... Me and the X-Men, the X-Men and me sort of a situation where I can go through my entire X-Fandom with you uh, from beginning, middle to unfortunate end, uh, at least up to this point. But this was the first issue that I, I just couldn't couldn't track down. Uh, and it was in those seminal months where I decided that this was going to be something I collected rather than, you know, just simply focusing on the ElfQuest comics that brought me into a comic shop. I, I made the move over to superhero comics, and, uh, well, you know, folks of my vintage, generally speaking, 
always had comics around, whether they were collecting or not. Comics would just always find a way into your house somehow, or or at least into your into your worldview. You'd see them around. Uh, you'd see them at the dentist's office or on a on a you know on a newsstand. It was just something that was around, not like it is today. Now, when I tell folks that I started collecting the X Men with uh, you know the, the launch of Volume Two. Uh, you know, the big Claremont Lee book that sold skatey 8 million copies and holds world records and all that stuff. The five covers, the gatefold. I think a lot of folks think that that was my first issue. And uh, I really haven't done much to correct that because it's not like a big deal or nothing. But my first actual issue of X-Men where I decided that I was going to collect, not just something I picked up randomly or something that I found in the house that maybe someone bought or someone dropped off for me. But the first issue that I bought where I was going to make collecting comics like something I did, you know, it was a X-Men Volume 2, number 13. A very, very random issue, uh, and I don't even remember why I bought it. I think I liked the cover because it had, uh, you know, it had the team there just jumping towards the reader. There was this mysterious bad guy in the background who we learned was called Hazard, which... <laughs> He really didn't do a whole heck of a lot. He, he came back several years later, um, actually many years later for a little stint. But uh, this was the first issue I bought, and it was actually part two of a story. So I went into this thing reading a half, the second half of a two-part story right before the Executioner's Song crossover. So it was just the, the worst possible time to invest in a new property or a new uh, family of titles, a franchise of titles. But it somehow got me. It somehow won me over and didn't understand a whole heck of a lot of it because it is very self-referential. And But I did know that it was important because it, it did call back to, you know, Xavier's past and stuff. And I, and I knew that that was important and that was enough to make me invest. And I decided then and there that... I wanted to know everything I could about the X-Men. But, you know, I mean, Uncanny at the time was zeroing in on its 300th issue, and that seemed like something I wouldn't be able to do. <laughs> you know, I'll get every single issue of Uncanny X-Men. Uh, and also, this was early in the Wizard days, so price guides were uh, more ubiquitous in, in the collecting uh, milieu, you know? It was just... You would buy things with the potential of them going up in value, and that kind of informed the way that pricing went, and back issues that were only a month or two old were suddenly doubling and tripling in price, getting bagged and boarded, and, you know, you were paying really out the nose just to catch up on things. So I had to be a little choosier than that, because I, I didn't, you know, I had my lunch money that I was spending on this stuff. It wasn't like I had... An allowance of any sort. Um, I had been working as a paperboy, but that was uh, that was coming to an end because, you know, paperboys can only deliver papers when they're not in school, where grown people can deliver papers, you know, first thing in the morning by throwing them out the side of a van. So there was a shift in the distribution of newspapers in my neighborhood. So I didn't really have the spending money to... To just you know, spend willy-nilly and, you know, maybe spend 30 bucks and get five recent comics. Couldn't do it. It's, uh, it was just way outside the realm of possibilities. So I had to be choosier. So I decided that I would collect back to that first Claremont and Lee issue, the, the gatefold cover issue, uh, X-Men Volume 2, Number 1. That's where I was going to start. 
and I was going to get there and collect forward and that would just be it. I would I would make sure I had the entirety of this volume of X-Men. And so I began in earnest, you know, I was going to get these books and it's it's you know, it's actually kind of embarrassing. But you know, when I bought X-Men Volume 2 number 1, like the book that you cannot avoid in the quarter bins these days. You 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 go through a quarter bin and there's dozens of these books in there. I probably paid $5 for it and uh I didn't even buy the gatefold cover one. It was just the one with Wolverine and Cyclops on the cover, <laughs> you know? And I'm sure I paid at least $5 for it, which, uh, looking at that now, it, it kind of makes you sick, but at the same time, it's like, that's just what the world was, the, the comic world was like back then. But, you know, I, I did collect the entire run except for this one issue I couldn't find, and it was X-Men Volume 2, number 8. And uh, no matter where I went, and uh, no matter where I looked, could not find this issue. Uh, anytime I went to anywhere that might have comics, I would go through whatever little bins they had there, and this book would never, ever show up. And it wasn't like a, you know, like I said, it wasn't like a huge key issue. It was, you know, a book that you'd probably get for three bucks, you know, which back then was pretty decent. And I just, just the, the whole thing was I couldn't find it. Um, we fast forward, you know, a month or two, you know, the Executioner song started and I skipped over the first couple of parts of that. I just wanted the X-Men chapters, X-Men volume two chapters. And that's where, you know, I, you know, I, I say that I'm really a big fan of lore and that is very, very true even to this day. So I, I pull open, you know, cause it came bagged with a card cause it was the big crossover and I, I start reading it and. That's when I realized that I needed I needed to buy all four of the main X-Men books, being X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, X-Force, and X-Factor, because those were the four books that were involved in this crossover. So it's like, okay, well, I need to get these books. And then I had to track down the first part, which was Uncanny X-Men 294, maybe? 293? One of those. It had Cable standing over uh, Professor Xavier. But I had to track that one down. It almost, it very nearly became a white whale, but I did find it at a uh, greeting card store. Uh, <laughs> it was very, very weird. But I, I did manage to get that, and I, you know, over those months, I did buy the, the entirety of the Executioner song and realized, okay, well, if I'm going to do this with X-Men, I need to do it with all four of these books. I need to get, I need to get all four of these books at least back to, you know, the big, Blue and Gold Split, uh, X-Force being launched, uh, the new X-Factor team post-issue 71 with uh, Peter David and uh, Strowman. But I uh, I decided that's what, you know, that'll be it. You know, I'm going to get these four books, and, but I'm going to know them inside and out. I'm going to get them to this one point where everything changed so I can be up to date and I can understand the lore. I kind of dismissed everything before that initially because... It didn't seem like it mattered as much. It wasn't as prevalent or relevant, even. Uh, it kind of the way, when I came over to the DC side, I kind of dismissed everything that came before Crisis as not mattering. Uh, I've since, you know, <laughs> understood the error of my ways and have gone back and spent quite a bit of time and money on pre-Crisis stuff. But uh, at this point, it was good enough for me to have everything going forward from whatever it was, August of 1991, or whatever it was, where everything changed... It was that new Jim Lee blue gold era, and uh, that's where I was going to. That's where I was going to collect from because everything else was just way, way too daunting. Um, 
I remember reading the Executioner song, and I was trying to put things in number order for the first time because I didn't have that many. But I didn't have any issues of X Factor or X Force, and I was I was expecting them to have similar numbering to X Men Volume Two. I figured they'd all be in their teens, and uh, you know, X Force of course was. I think it was like one or two issues higher than X-Men Volume 2, but then I look at X-Factor, and it was, like, issue 85, and I'm like, how did this book have 80-something issues already? And I, it totally blew me away, and that just shows how ignorant I was of Marvel history, and, uh, you know, I did know X-Force came out of New Mutants, because, I mean, those Leafield, Leafield, Liefeld covers were (laughs) everywhere hanging up in my local shop, so you knew that X-Force was born from New Mutants. But I didn't know anything about X-Factor. X-Factor was just a totally new concept to me. Didn't know anything about the, you know, the original five being on the team. Uh, as far as I was concerned, this was Cyclops' brother's team, you know, and that was just the way it was. But that was, like, really eye-opening to me uh, to see this. This book was, of, of you know, so much older than these new books. But, you know, over the course of the next year or so, I did go back and I did collect... Everything from all the titles, you know, Uncanny I had from 281 on, uh, X-Force I had from number 1 on, um, X-Factor I had from 71 on, but X-Men Volume 2, I had everything except this 8th issue. I could not find it anywhere. And I mean, I was finding, you know, still bagged X-Force number 1s, any card you might want in there, but I could not find this ridiculous, just random issue of X-Men, this X-Men number 8 and it was beginning to drive me crazy. Um, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I I get kind of obsessed when I, I'm going to collect something. You know, uh, when I started the uh, the X Men collection, there were six X Men titles. You know, I was collecting four of them in earnest because they were fifty cents uh, cheaper than the other two. Uh, the other two were Excalibur and Wolverine. They were both a dollar seventy five each instead of a dollar twenty five each which put them outside of my price range. So I had precious few that I might have found, you know, here and there. Um, But I cleared out a shelf in my closet. We had put up, like, these, like, metal racks in my closet where, you know, things could be stacked and stored. But uh, I cleared off an entire, um, entire shelf, and I made these six pitiful piles I had my Uncanny X-Men pile, my X-Men Volume 2 pile, X-Force X-Factor, and then I had, like, one issue of Wolverine, (laughs) and I had two issues of Excalibur that I found in a 50-cent bin uh, out uh, when I was visiting uh, my uncle. It was, uh, boy, I don't remember the numbers, but I remember the covers. Like, one of them had uh, Megan, uh, like, wrapped around Captain Britain, and she was like a creepy mermaid of sorts. It was... uh, a pretty striking cover, I suppose, but I didn't know jack all about Excalibur. I just knew it was a tangentially X-Men adjacent sort of a book and part of the part of the greater X family, I suppose. But I didn't really track it as much because it was you know so crazily expensive and uh, definitely out of uh, out of my price range for uh, Ernest collection. But I, I still remember it, like every day going into that uh, going through that uh, those shelves on the closet and. It would just always stick with me that I didn't have uh, X-Men number 8. And <laughs> it really, like, it was one of those things I lost sleep over. It was so dumb. But uh, I was just really, really, really wanting to know. And, it, and a lot of it is, it's the lore of it. I wanted to know what happened. It wasn't so much about the collectability. 
it wasn't even just the fact that I was missing a number, you know? It's not like today where, like, my lists today, they they don't have covers on them, they're just numbers. And, uh... It's just like, it's kind of like the embarrassment of riches when it comes to comics. It's like, well, I need such and such issue to fill this run. I'll probably never read it. Or if I do read it, it probably won't be for quite a long time. Whereas this one, with, with X-Men number 8 here, I wanted it so I could read it. And when you have that small collection, and when you are of a certain uh, obsessive bent, <laughs> as I was, and, and to a great extent still sort of am... You know, I would read through these things over and over and over again and try to discover new things and try to just map my way through this franchise and have a as well-rounded an understanding of it as possible so that I would get references and I would get, you know, callbacks. And if I was at the comic shop and someone mentioned something, I would be able to just at least understand what they were saying. I probably wouldn't have joined in on a conversation, but at least I would know what they were talking about. And that was just part of the magic of the X-Men of the day, because this was in that weird transition post-Claremont. And, uh, you know, Jim Lee had his stint where, you know, a bunch of things were kind of put on the table, but then left on the table because he left. So there was a lot of just weird wobbliness to the X-Men, and uh, theories began just really, really growing out of every (laughs) every little side remark from a character... And that was just so much fun. That was part of the enjoyment of following the X-Men. You'd, I remember we were in, me and my buddy were in a comic shop, and we heard that, you know, Cable might be Cyclops' son, and it just blew us away because we didn't even know Cyclops had a son. <laughs> so it was just, the entire thing was a learning process, and there was no Wikipedia. There was no digital archives back then. It was just, you had word of mouth, and you'd learn from fellow fans, and you'd... Uh, and, you know, it was so easy to take everything as gospel that when it turned out that Cable was, in fact, Cyclops' son, it just was so rewarding and satisfying to have been, you know, sort of kind of on the ground floor of that kind of discovery or that kind of revelation. It was just a time in comics that I don't think will ever be back, unfortunately, because everything just moves too quickly and too... uh Contradictory in a way Where we're always trying to reinvent the wheel And we're always trying to slip one past the goalie So, I mean, how many solicits do we see these days Where everything you thought you knew was wrong You know, it's just There's a law of diminishing returns when it comes to that And the magic of theorizing And actually analyzing And that's just That's just not a thing anymore, unfortunately But I digress That's not what we're here to talk about We're not here to complain about comics these days We're here to uh, celebrate the uh, the comics of uh, yesteryear and uh, try to find that love and appreciation that I once had once again. And, you know, I kind of feel like I'm on my way. It's weird. I uh, I, I had to revisit, or I didn't have to, I, I decided to revisit the X-Men for an upcoming Cosmic Treadmill episode. It, it'll either be this weekend or the following weekend where we discuss the X-Trader. And as a uh, sort of a test, you know, a... A Chris experiment, a Chris experiment of sorts. I used only um, hard materials. I only used I used tangibles to do my research. I didn't do any internet research on this. I did all of my all of my quest for information through actual issues, physical issues, uh, magazines, catalogs, anything I could find that would uh, lend proper gestaltiness to this uh, to this little endeavor of the X Trader where. 
I wanted to really put myself in that position again where I was discovering things and uh, maybe maybe even like noticing nuances that I'd missed the first time around. And I found it to be a very fulfilling and satisfying experience to do so. And uh, I, it's going to be a lot of fun. I really I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It's it's I had a real good time and it made me it made me for the first time. It made me like almost physically miss <laughs> the X-Men. I mean, I, I've often said, you know, oh, I, you know, I miss the, I miss when the X-Men were a thing that existed in my life. But this actually like hurt, you know, because this is this was such a, a formative time in my fandom and in a in a in a, in a way my life. Um really informed the way that I view comics, the way I enjoy comics. It was just a, it was a heck of a good time, and I, I really can't wait for you guys to hear that. But back to X-Men number 8. Now, this one, I couldn't find it, and uh, I, I ultimately found it, but it was like years later. <laughs> and But still, I found it in the wild. I found it all on my own, and uh, there was just such a sigh of relief when I found this thing. You know, it's like you build up this just desire and this need to have this thing in your collection. And here I was. I was finally there. I finally found it. And here's the thing. I found it in the very same place that I found the one chapter from The Death of Superman that I missed at the comic shop. It was at a uh, baseball card store at the Sunvet Mall in uh, Long Island. And the funny thing is about that is that I was there because they were having a mall convention. And this was, X-Men number 8 was my entire list. That's the one book I had to find. I went from table to table looking for this damn book. Nobody had it. Then, you know, disheartened and slump-shouldered, I walked into the baseball card store hoping that I could find, you know, maybe some Marvel cards or something. And there it was, X-Men number 8, just right there on a rack. And, uh... Almost mocking me But You know I got it Read it Loved it You know I think uh, I think a lot of times When we have our white whales We kind of build them up And we build up this expectation For what we're going to be experiencing And uh, how great it's going to be or, or whatever You know We just set ourselves up To where it, Whatever it is It's just never going to live up to To the high expectations That we set for it This comic though Lived up to all of my expectations. I just fell in love with it um, because it, uh, in a way, changed it changed the way I look at comics, at least the X Men comics. Because coming in post Claremont, I didn't real. I wasn't there for the team building. I wasn't there for the you know for the annual baseball games. You know, I wasn't there for the family uh, aspect of the X Men. Really, um, what I came into was you know just mostly action and a lot of angst, but not. So much the the family bend of it Where, I mean, this issue that we're going to discuss in a little while The X-Men go on a picnic You know, <laughs> it's very different than what anything I might have expected From a superhero comic at the time Which really speaks to, you know, the novelty of superhero comics to someone like me So this really did change the way that I, uh, that I viewed what a, what a superhero comic could be Just this very issue because it was just so different from anything I might have expected or, or might have even thought that I was looking for. Now, it's always dangerous to have those high expectations. Um, another, you know, hopefully brief story before we get into the synopsis here, but uh, one of the things that my friends and I were really, really hooked on uh, as we got into high school, um, 
Uh, I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. A lot of folks know that. I, I, you know, me and my wife vacation up in that hotel every year. You know, it's something we do. It's, it's just you know one of the things we're passionate about. And uh, growing up, I was kind of like kind of really into like David Lynch in a way where I didn't really watch a whole lot of his stuff, but I just loved the the aura that he had, you know, and I wanted to know as much as I could about a lot of his work. Um, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, you got to see Eraserhead. And Eraserhead became the white whale of films for me and my, you know, friend group, where, you know, you, you couldn't find it anywhere because it wasn't... I, I, you know, and I, this is this is all like schoolyard stuff. So for all I know, it's completely wrong. But the word going around, uh, at least in our circle, was that uh, the movie was never put on VHS. It was only put on beta. So like you would only be able to find it on beta or a transfer. Like somebody you know taped it off of the beta onto a VHS. And uh, none of the video stores around carried any beta. And any time we asked any of the video stores if they knew of a race ahead, uh, they didn't. Nobody knew what we were talking about. And this is where it like kind of goes full blown stand by me. You know, <laughs> we're looking, we're looking anywhere we can for this thing, and we're and we're getting this like weird directions from people who might know where to find this movie. And uh, there were always rumors that there was a, <laughs> and it's so dumb. There were always rumors that there was a satanic bookstore in uh, somewhere in Old Town Sayville, which was like a, a town over from where I was living at the time. And I remember we, we went looking for this bookstore because they had a video section that was supposed supposedly carried uh, this Eraserhead film. And, uh, man, we walked into, like, every store, like, thinking maybe, like, oh, maybe this, maybe this pharmacy's a cover for a satanic book. It was so dumb. The stupidest thing. But... I guess that's just part of the magic of being young. I wish I could have that uh, wide-eyed innocence again. <laughs> but uh, any store, a candle store, it's like, well, maybe they sell, you know, <laughs> Betamax tapes. And, 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 you know, keeping in mind, if we found this thing on beta, we would have it, we would have had no way to play it. You know, we would have, none of us had a beta machine. I don't think any of us knew where we would be able to find a beta machine. I don't know if they even sold them at that point, but... Uh, we, uh, we hunted for this thing for on and off for, for many, many years. And uh, I don't think we ever found that satanic bookstore, unfortunately. Or fortunately, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of uh, bad hoodoo that would have left on me and my pals. But, uh, yeah, we couldn't find this thing. <laughs> and I actually wouldn't see the movie for until 2007. So, I mean, this is like 15 years that I didn't see this movie. And I'd built it up in my head to the point where this thing was just going to rock my socks and just change my life. I remember reading synopsises and, and looking at still frames on, on people's websites from this movie and just getting so psyched up about the you know inevitability that I was eventually, one day, hopefully, going to see this movie. And it actually wasn't until a buddy of mine signed up for Netflix. And this was before, like, streaming was huge, so it was, you, you know, you'd They'd send you the DVDs. And he gave me the, uh, he, he put me in front of the list. I don't remember if it was online or on paper or something, but he's like, hey, you know, see if there's anything you want to see on there. Sure enough, Eraserhead's right there. I'm like, this was supposed to be, like, hard to find. How is this on Netflix? You know, so we ordered it. And uh, we, we actually watched it uh, every Christmas Eve. I have a, a pretty big blowout uh, party uh, with family and friends. And we actually watched it 
before uh, everybody came over on Christmas Eve in 2007. I think I'd actually, that same day, I think I read the last part of uh, Spider-Man One More Day, the very same day. And uh, we watched Eraserhead, and it was not what I expected. Uh, <laughs> my buddy was like, what are you making me watch? This thing's been on for three hours. It, it's not a very long movie, but it, it does feel kind of long. But, uh, you know, those, those are the uh, the dangers of setting yourself up for something or really building an expectation. Um, as far as Eraserhead's concerned, I think it's uh, it's one of those movies that I think everybody should see, but I have, I have kind of trouble... Uh, uh, Suggesting it or recommending it But I do think everyone should see it Just to experience it Um, I don't know that I'd watch it again anytime soon But uh, (laughs) it was definitely an experience But uh, you know enough about that Enough about white whales Uh, I I definitely do want to hear about your guys' white whales If uh, if you are a collector Or a would-be collector Or a lapsed collector Former collector What were some of your white whales? Uh, Key issues, non-key issues, random issues? Uh, Let me know. I I think that could be a fun little chat. But uh, I think for now we'll just put a pin in it and we will go right into our discussion of X-Men Volume 2, Number 8. So here we go. X-Men Volume 2, Number 8. May 1992, cover date. Story is called Tooth and Claw. Plot and pencils by Jim Lee. Scripted by Scott Lobdell. Finishes by Jim Lee, and I think it's Art Thibbert. Uh, colors, Joe Roses. Letters, Tom Orzachowski. Edited by Bob Harris and chiefed by Tom DeFalco. This had a cover price of $1.25. Now, the reason I picked this one up uh, outside of the White Whale discussion is because, like I mentioned, we are doing the X-Trader. And this is kind of like the second chapter of that overarching or over long arc, I guess. Um, but we will start off with something that has absolutely nothing to do with the X-Trader, and uh, that is Wolverine. He is banging away on one of Professor Xavier's computers. He's, uh, as he usually did back then, he's looking for information about his past. He doesn't know where he came from, and he'd really like to know. Now, Jubilee and Cyclops interrupt in order to let him know that the Professor's about to debut the, quote, newest X-Dude. Wolverine's not interested, and he basically tells him to hit the bricks. Elsewhere, Professor X and Storm are just about to present that new X-Dude. That's Bishop. And he's gonna introduce, they're going to introduce Bishop to the Blue Strike Force. They run into Forge, who is still acting a little bit burnt from Storm having turned down his proposal. And he's, uh, he's really acting kind of passive-aggressive about it. It's uh, pretty obvious that he's got a bone to pick with Storm. To the point where Professor Xavier asks Storm if anything's the matter, and she says no, but he knows better. You know, he might have read her mind, too. Who knows? Now, as Bishop, Storm, and Xavier ride an elevator upwards, Bishop is hes kind of fanboying out. He's uh, really looking forward to meeting Cyclops, you know. He does uh, refer to him as the X-Men's greatest leader, which uh, Storm takes a little bit of exception to, kind of suggests that he not believe everything he reads. Uh, you know, after all, she did beat Cyclops that one time back in the day, and... Uh, I think in basic Claremontese, that just means she's a better overall leader, doesn't it? I'm always a, I'm a Cyclops guy. What do you what do you what do you want from me? On uh, the top side, the introduction finally happens. Uh, Bishop is pretty awestruck, uh, and he comments on most of the characters he's uh, introduced to. Uh, he sees Cyclops, and he refers to him as the first X Man. Uh, Jean Grey, he already met Jean Grey in the uh, in Uncanny, so he doesn't really say much about her. He refers to Beast as Randall's most read philosopher, 
To which Beast says, who's Randall? Which is pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> when Bishop came back to the present, he did so with a couple of, uh, couple of flunkies, uh, Malcolm and Randall, were his, uh, were his little strike forces, Xavier Security Enforcement, uh, you know, it was a triumvirate or something. Now, they would pass away uh, back in the X-Trader issue, actually, which we'll be covering on the treadmill. So you'll get a full breakdown of uh, the passing of poor Malcolm and Randall. Now, Psy- Psylocke and Rogue, he just says their names. He's not, he's not really overly impressed with seeing them. He doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to say. That changes with Gambit, though. He mentions that there's very little written about Gambit in the future, which uh, Gambit's cool with. He says that's just the way he likes it. And then he refers to Jubilee as the last X-Man. Now, she thinks that's pretty cool, but Gambit doesn't quite understand how she'd be the last X-Man if Bishop himself is, you know, a thing that exists. Now, Bishop uh, looks at Gambit, and he kind of flashes back to that video of Jean Grey getting blowed up back in Uncanny 287. That's, again, the X-Trader thing. And he refers to Gambit as LeBeau, which is the name the witness that he talked to in that very same issue went by. This, uh, you know, kind of ticks Gambit off because LeBeau is Gambit's actual real name. <laughs> and uh, I think this might be the first time he's actually referred to by, you know, LeBeau. So Gambit's annoyed, and the two men charge toward one another. Uh, Cyclops hops in the way before it can come to blows, though. Uh, Bishop starts, you know, ranting at Gambit. He's calling him a traitor, you know, and then he turns to Professor Xavier and he commands that Xavier perform a side scan on Gambit to see what's going on in his head. Xavier has some other ideas, though. He uh, he decides, you know what? We had a picnic planned today, so we're gonna go on that picnic. We're gonna we're gonna dis- we're gonna discuss this later on a full stomach. And and yeah, seriously, the X Men are about to have a picnic by the lake. Which first time I read this, I was like, this is crazy. You know, I was expecting just action, fighting, punching, blasting, and here we are. They're gonna be taking time off. It's gonna be a downtime issue. They're gonna be hanging out by the lake, having a picnic. Now, before they go, Bishop is, like, he's throwing a tantrum. He's annoyed that nobody is taking what he's saying seriously. He's crying to Storm. Uh, thankfully, Storm's like, hey, listen, you've only been an X-Man like an hour. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe slow down a little bit before you start making accusations, uh, and then you'll have a little bit more credibility. Before we head out to the picnic, we shift back to Wolverine, and he's still digging through all the databases. Uh, Professor X pops his head in to check on him, and they have a little chat about, you know... Yeah, your past is the past. All that matters is the present. So, you know, you're an X-Man now. You're, you know, let's focus on that. But hey, Wolverine doesn't stop his search. He goes back to back to digging through the data. Now outside, the picnic is finally happening. Gene is trying to chat with Scott, but his mind is elsewhere. As in, he's kind of like drooling over Psylocke, who's wearing her Pikachu bathing suit. Uh, and she kind of she rises out of the lake, kind of like Phoebe Cates in whatever movie that was that Phoebe Cates came out of the water in. But uh, it's funny. This uh, you've probably seen this panel before, but if not, I'll include it on the blog. Her cost her her bathing suit. It looks like uh, the Pokemon Pikachu is on it. It's it's very very weird. Like had this issue come out like five years later, it would have almost certainly <laughs> been a reference to Pikachu. But there was no Pikachu at this point. It's just a very weird coincidence. Um, now, this whole subplot was kind of interesting, but it was explained away in a pretty unsatisfying way, which, uh, you know, I, I, X-Men stories of the day were kind of 50-50 in that regard. Sometimes you get really, really cool and uh, sometimes lucky uh, conclusions, and sometimes they would just kind of peter out. And I, I believe this 
weird love triangle between Psylocke, Jean, and, and Scott kind of uh, kind of just petered out. Now, Jean tosses Cyclops into the lake. She's annoyed, and he shouts, you know, Jean, don't throw me in a lake. And uh, this causes Bishop to believe that he's under attack. <laughs> He, like, freaks out. He pulls his pulls his big leaf Liefeldian rifle off his shoulder, and he's going to, like, go deal out justice. Uh, Storm tells him to calm down. Maybe, maybe settle down. Settle down. Um, elsewhere, Rogue and Gambit are having a touchless time. You know, Rogue and Gambit can't touch. I, I, they might still not be able to touch. I, I think they're married now. I don't even know. But... Worth noting that Rogue is wearing very, very little clothes, uh, despite her, you know, mutant curse of not having skin-to-skin contact with anybody. Uh, Gambit, he decides he wants to play the odds, and he playfully chases her. He's like, I'm going to touch you anyway. And as she runs, she plows right into Bishop's chest. Bishop threatens that he'll be keeping an eye on Gambit from this point on, and uh, Gambit gives him the whole, you know, don't sing it, bring it sort of thing. And so Bishop punches him in the face. Gambit goes flying from this punch, and he smacks right into Rogue, who somehow falls off a cliff into the lake. I didn't realize there were cliffs on Xavier's property, but I suppose there suppose there are, or there were. Uh, Gambit charges up some earth, and he hurls it in Bishop's direction, which knocks Bishop off his uh, off balance here. Gambit stands over Bishop and informs him that if he ever were to betray the X-Men, he'd probably kill Bishop first, which... You know, really doesn't help his case all that much If he's trying to, you know, play like he's innocent Now Bishop goes for his rifle And uh, Gambit goes for a pie Yes, he reaches for a boysenberry pie That Rogue had baked He charges it up and he throws it at Bishop Bishop smoothly evades the pie And uh, it winds up smacking right into Rogue's face She is not pleased She allegedly spent four hours baking the pie Which, uh I don't know if you've ever made pies before. That seems a little excessive, doesn't it? I mean, four hours in the oven? That's that's a long time. Uh, Bishop and Gambit erupt in laughter at poor Rogue's misfortune, and uh, Rogue threatens to kill Gambit. Like, dead. (laughs) Says, keep laughing, you'll die with a smile on your face. To which, Gambit says, I'm going to outlive everyone here, which, again, really not helping your case, pal. (laughs) You know, uh, you want to plead innocence here, but... uh, you're saying all the wrong stuff to all the wrong people. Uh, after this little misunderstanding, and uh, after wiping her face, Rogue, Gambit, and Bishop have themselves a talk. They decide to settle their tea kettles for a little bit. Uh, you know, the future hasn't happened yet, and right now they're all good guys, or, you know, on the side of the angels, or however they put it. Then, Gambit is nailed in the back with an energy blast. Turns out this blast came from his ex-wife, or his current wife. I don't know, Belladonna Bordeaux, or Belladonna Boring, as I I would call her. She is so dull. Uh, From here, we get some equally boring, you know, Thieves Guild, Assassin's Guild chatter. I hated this stuff. This was so dull. Uh, But before we know it, the team is bound for New Orleans, and uh, they're not the only ones going there, because Ghost Rider is going to be there, too. I don't know if this was supposed to be like a surprise cliffhanger sort of a thing, but Ghost Rider is on the cover of the book, so who knows what Marvel was thinking here. It's Ghost Rider was one of those guys that you stuck in books to sell books back in the day, as weird as that might sound. Uh, but this would go into a very boring New Orleans story, not my favorite <laughs> of any by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, this issue itself was just, I, I love this issue. It had comedy, it had drama, it had mystery. Um, it's, it's issues like this that make me 
kind of, you know, scrunch my face up when I hear people dismiss the Scott Lobdell run. It's actually because of issues like this and uh, the later Uncanny X-Men number 308 that I will buy anything with Scott Lobdell's name on it. Um, it's these kind of stories that evoked this kind of reaction and this kind of like magical feeling and uh, just excitement about uh, about a franchise. And it's not even like a huge issue, you know? It's just an issue that makes you feel like you're actually just spending time with friends and you're learning more about people that you're interested in. And Lobdell did that better than a lot of people give him credit for. He's a. Uh, I've talked and I've threatened to do a uh, from Claremont to Claremont X Men podcast if I ever found the twenty sixth, twenty seventh, and twenty eighth hour of the day. But that that's how important this run is to me. Now, if you haven't read uh, this run or you haven't read it in a while, I I recommend you do so. Uh, if you if you have access to them, this is uh, this is really good stuff. Uh, that like I said, just doesn't get the credit I think it deserves. Um, the ex-editorial officers were just, you know, overwhelmed with upheaval. You know, people were leaving, people were coming, people were going. And uh, they managed to, for the most part, uh, stick a lot of the landings that they were uh, that they had in front of them. Sure, there was some marketing stuff that kind of got in the way, and maybe some stories were drawn out or truncated to fit certain demands from uh, high above creative. But for the most part, this is some... This is some really fun stuff, and it, you know, granted, this might be nostalgia. It's you know, there is definitely ruby quartz colored glasses I'm looking through here that uh, that might be affecting the way I receive it. But I tell you what, this past week going through these X Men comics uh, in order to write the that X Trader script, it feels like I'm you know like 13, 14 years old again. I mean, I'm digging through like Wizard magazines, and it's and it's just such a weird. Uh, you know, it's like a sort of homecoming that I really wasn't expecting. Uh, when I decided that I wanted to cover the X-Trader, uh, it's one that I've been talking about and threatening Reggie with for a while. When I decided I was going to do it, I thought it was going to be something I did through gritted teeth. Unable to get over myself, you know, because I just have that weird problem where, you know, if I don't like what Marvel's doing today, it hurt my ability to enjoy what came before. But thankfully, it was the complete opposite. I had a blast going through them, and for the first time in a long time, I actually checked DCBS to see what the X-Men were up to uh, coming up. I uh, didn't buy anything because I didn't understand any of the solicits, but <laughs> it might be a step in the right direction, at least insofar as my accepting that there are new voices uh, and there are new uh, stewards for one of my favorite franchises. So, there's that. So I am uh, growing. I am evolving. Uh, I am uh, maybe uh, getting a little soft. So which is good. <laughs> it's better than just flatly dismissing everything. But I think that's probably all I have to say about this issue. We'll have more on the cosmic treadmill. Uh, this one will get a get a mention because of its ex traderness. But uh, if you have any uh, questions, comments, concerns, or anything you just want to say, you could do so. WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to talk about your collecting habits, your or, or your early white whales, your current white whales, how you dug the Lobdell Nisiesa era of X-Men, just uh, anything. I'm down to talk.
about whatever. I'm a very lonely man, so that's a good thing. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill. I'm at Ace Comics. Reggie's at Reggie Reggie. Uh, the website, ChrisandReggie.com. Uh, my website, ChrisOnInfiniteEarths.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. If you guys have any uh, Marvel recommendations, uh, let me know. If, uh, there's a, a lot of Marvel that I'm passionate about, and hopefully uh, throughout this process, I'll be able to maybe become outwardly passionate about them uh, in the not-so-distant future. So I've taken up just about enough of your day. So, uh, uh, so long for now. Talk to you again real soon.